Hey guys, this is Alexis, and today I have with me C.K. Barlow. She is a composer for media and also a professor um, of TV, film, and um, music technology. So hey, C.K. Hey there. How's it going? <laughs> Thanks for having me. No problem. Everything's going good. So uh, why don't you tell me about your background and kind of how you got started in music? Oh, gosh. Um, I would say, like, super early on, you know, taking piano lessons as a little one and being in church choir and handball choir and school choir and all of that. So it's just always been there since I was a little, little kid. Started my first band when I was 13 and have always been in bands since. Um, and then I got a little more... I got in my bachelor's degree, I did a minor in music and majored in, in uh, technical writing. Okay. And then in my 30s, I did a master's degree in theory and composition. That's kind of how I you know, became known at the University of New Mexico, where I teach now. Okay. Um, and I'm not, I'm not a professor. I'm a, you know, a, a lecturer, too, is my official title. But you know, I, it's great, because I go in, I teach the classes that I dig teaching, and, and then I go do my own thing. So it's, it's pretty awesome. Okay, so what are you teaching? I teach a Fundamentals of Music Technology course, which is something that most music majors at UNM have to, they have to have a technology credit, and they fulfill it by taking that class, but it's, a, it's really MIDI intensive, so how all that stuff works, how all the workstation components fit together, why you need each piece of gear in the typical setup, you know, what an audio interface is and what it does, what a MIDI interface is and what it does, and... Um, yeah, it's, it gets pretty deep and MIDI. Then I have an advanced music production class, and that's people from both... Both of those classes are both um, people from the music department and people from the film and digital media program. It's called IFDM, um, Interdisciplinary Film and Digital Media. And that's supposed to be people who have some background already in producing music, and at the least they should have taken my class and a couple of other related classes so that they come in and we look at more advanced stuff like parallel compression on drums and rhythmic gating and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. And then I just started this semester teaching a class called Arts Entrepreneurship. And that's a lot more about mindset. That's like um, thinking of yourself as a, thinking of your art as a business, not in an icky way, and actually kind of getting past that, that, you know, obstacle that a lot of people have mentally that somehow it makes it dirty, you know, like somehow it screws up their art if they sell it. And um, things like networking and, and being brave, you know, having courage to go out and meet people and, and ask for things and, you know, not ask for things, but like give and take and, uh, so it's a lot more about mindset than, than specific skills or stuff like that. So. Okay, gotcha. So you also do a lot of other things. Your only income is not necessarily from what you're teaching, but you're also involved in music production yourself. So can you tell me a little bit about some of the other things that you do? Yeah, yeah. I, um, yeah, as a matter of fact, when, when you and I spoke last week, we talked about this a little bit, that I'm sort of like having just moved to Maryland about a month before you know this video is sh shooting. Um, figuring out the best schedule for me, but I'm right now I'm spending the first six or eight hours of the day composing and producing, 
and then I work on my teaching obligations to make sure I get that, you know, like you said, that book, the one thing, the thing that matters to me is that I have composing time every single day. So I just do it first, and then I do everything else. So like writing for TV. So I work with a lot of different publishers, and they'll contact their stable of composers and say, hey, we need stuff in the style of David Guetta. We need stuff in the style of the Black Keys. We need blah, blah, blah. Um, and you write it and send it to them, and they try to get it used on TV. That's okay. really, really fun. Yeah, so right now I've got something on TV. Judging by, judging by my placement stats, I'm averaging uh, one a day right now, so I'm, I'm kind of a baby in it. I'm just ramping up now. Yeah, you said you said something the last time we talked about you being a baby, but then you said you probably have around 330 pieces. I think that's that's probably uh, you've at least graduated to elementary school at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just you know my colleagues who are making their full time living at this, they have 1,500 and more. Okay. And some of these are you know some of these are 30 seconds, 60 seconds, a minute and a half is kind of typical. Right now I'm working on a whole album of full songs. And those I'll spend four days to a week on, so that that's a lot slower. But yeah, you know, you just—it's um, kind of a numbers game, so you you crank it out. Yeah, for sure. I think maybe can you tell us a little bit about how you know you said 330 pieces. A lot of artists, at least that I've worked with uh, currently, aren't necessarily receiving placements in TV or in films and things like that yet. Um, but their catalog is a lot smaller. They've re released a full-length album and an EP, or maybe a few right. full-length albums and an EP. Um, and so, you know, in terms of getting placement with that, is it a specialized thing where you have to kind of determine that you're going to be in the in the business of producing for television um, versus trying to be a performing artist, or how does that kind of work out? Well, that's that's a really good question because there is kind of a delineation between people like me who, you know, I call myself a composer rather than an artist or a band, right? And there's a kind of a distinction there. Like I'm gunning for production music, which is kind of the label for music that is produced specifically with the hopes that it's going to get used in a TV show or a film. So I'm gunning for that, and I'm mostly doing instrumentals. Whereas an artist, you have fewer pieces, but you're actually in a great position because ever since the show Grey's Anatomy, it's now a thing for a show to try to break new artists. There's a cachet that they have. If Grey's and you know when Grey's Anatomy used um, the story by Brandy Carlisle, and boom, you know both. For, you know, it's a great thing for Grey's Anatomy, and it's a great thing for Brandy Carlisle. It's okay to have only an album or two if it's fantastic. Right. So, okay. there are places like, um, you know, I can I can totally put this name out there because they they let anybody submit music to them through their website, which is Crucial Music, and um, they mostly deal in songs, rather songs meaning um, songs with lyrics as opposed to instrumentals. So they mostly deal with songs and artists, and they would love to hear your 12 tracks, your 10-track album. They'd love to hear that if it's great. You right. know, so that's okay. That doesn't, it doesn't, what I'm doing, big numbers. If okay. you're an artist, it's cool as long as you've got something really, really great. Um, okay. Then you've got a shot. It's just, you know, you and how many other, oh, 
thousands and thousands of people out there also have an album. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it, the bar is so high. The bar is so high. And if it's not well produced, maybe that's okay. If it's just got a vibe, like vibe for days, it could work. You know, we, we've heard music on commercials that were like, oh my God, they're, you know, the voice is terrible. They're, they're, you know, they're playing a attitude ukulele. Yet you also acknowledge that it's somehow kind of charming. Mm -hmm. We've all heard we've all heard music like that used on TV, so it's not necessarily that you have to you know auto tune your ukulele. It's just that it's got to have some kind of something special because there's just so many people doing it, and that's even true for for instrumentals. But. Sure, and I like that you said that you know even if you do just have one full length album, it just has to be great. You know, it has to be. Oh, yeah. You know, um, make sure that you're producing something that's high quality, you know. Right. I mean, I, th I think if there's one thing that I consistently say to my students who are in bands and they grab a laptop so it's got GarageBand on it or they've got a PC and they've got MixCraft or something or, you know, Ableton Live Lite, because they can record an album now, they think that they should. And so they put all this time into recording an album and I listen to the first track and I'm like, Tune your guitars. Tune your guitars, okay? And practice for like another year and then make an album. I mean, I'm not, and I'm not meaning to be mean. Oh, no, no. Because like, you know, my partner, Karen, she will still kind of tease me sometimes. One of the first things I composed and produced after, you know, really starting to try to pursue music for TV, the opportunity was for a French laundry detergent commercial. Okay. And the thing I did, it was horrible. It was horrible. But at the time, it was the best that I could do. And she'll still, like, she'll just, like, walk through the room I'm in and sing the melody, and I'll just be like, no, stop it. But, um, you know, even Cara Diaguardi, she keeps a cassette of the first song she wrote. And when she's having a bad day, she'll listen to it to remind herself how far she's come. It's, you know, it's, it's got to be good. Practice, practice. Anybody, a monkey with a MacBook and GarageBand can record an album at this point. Just because you can do it, just because you can press record and sing into your cheap microphone connected by USB doesn't mean you should. <laughs> so, you know, practice. Yeah, I think you made another good point, though, is that, you know, the first, the first your first shot at that, you know, your first, your first shot, it will, it, you look at it now and you're like, man, that was terrible. Oh, it's embarrassing. You thought it was great. But it's, it's a matter of you kept going and you realize that you've gotten a lot better. You know, you've, you now produce 330 pieces or more. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, obviously this, you know, the 340th one is better than the 330th one. Um, and so you keep going, even if it's not so good at first. Yeah. Um, it's a funny thing. I, I've talked with some of my you know, composer colleagues about this, and I wrote a blog post about it, um, that there's this cycle of getting better and getting pickier and getting yeah. better and getting pickier. And what I was sort of thinking, you know, thinking through or thinking out loud in this blog post is that until you get to a certain level, it hurts too much to get picky. Like, you can't, you can't take it. You can't take being honest with yourself because... It sucks, and that hurts. 
and you might not know yet how to fix it. So it's almost like you know, you it, it, there's this. There has to be this cycle of as you get better, you become a little more confident. You get a little bit thicker skin. You can be harder in your self critiques, and you can give it to other people and say, "What do you think, really? Not mom, not your girlfriend. You know, not people who are going to pat you on the head and say, oh, that's awesome. You you know, recorded yourself singing Mary Had a Little Lamb' in Garage Man.' No, you've got to like." You get to a certain stage, and then you're able to be harder on on critiquing yourself, and you're able to get better, and that becomes a cycle. But man, it's it's uh, it takes a lot to get there. And when I first started doing this full time, and I had in our old house in Albuquerque, I had my little studio set up, and when I had to walk in there every day and come up with something, at first I was scared to death, and then just day after day after day. It got to be okay, and I might be two hours into a piece and being like, "Oh my God, this sucks! This sucks!" And then at like the fourth hour, I'm like, "Okay, I can work with this." And then at the sixth hour, I'm like, "Yeah!" And <laughs> you just you just got to do it, you know. You just got to keep after it. For sure. So okay, you've told me that you're you're teaching um, and you're also producing some music for TV and film. What are some of the other things that you're up to? What's, what's bringing you income these days? Bringing me income, um, I mean, the one non-music related thing that I still do is I still freelance for typically four hours a week at my old corporate job. Okay. But it's it's something that I feel pretty good about because it has to do with renewable energy. But basically, there's this really fussy reporting that the electric utility has to do regarding their their renewable energy production. And when I used to work there, I used to do that reporting. And the woman who's in charge of it now is just like, I don't have time. I don't have the bandwidth. Can you please just handle this for me? And so I get a, a really respectful hourly rate for four hours a week, and it helps out a lot. So I have that. I have teaching, and I have you know quarterly payments from ASCAP, from music being used. And every once in a while, the cool thing about having a bunch of pieces out there is that every once in a while there'll just be something in my mailbox that says the nice ones are like here's two grand because some comedian in in England used your song in her YouTube video wow. and she licensed she licensed it from this publisher that happened last summer I was like sweet and that just comes out of nowhere so um, yeah it's great and you know I have colleagues who We'll get uh, this one guy got an eighty thousand dollars sync fee on an electronica piece for a commercial, nice. and that doesn't happen to everybody. It's and it certainly never happened to me. But um, you know, anything's possible. I think if you if you work hard enough and and make the right connections. Sure. So it sounds like you've you're ha you have kind of a broad experience within you know creating music. Um, and one of the things that we talked about before was kind of how I married my love for music and accounting and you know now I'm this music accountant I guess an entertainment accountant if you want to call it that and so kind of tell me about you know maybe you know you did mental and that you do some technical writing and then you're also obviously composing and teaching and all of that so kind of tell me about uh, what you what you call that and then you know how you came to that and what you kind of instruct your students to do in terms of mapping out what their career would look like within the music industry maybe even other than performing and selling CDs. 
Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, so this concept of complementary opportunities, it's basically combining things in your skill set that you might not have thought would combine before. So um, you mentioned that I was a technical writer, so that was my bachelor's degree, was technical writing with a minor in music, and, and sort of a, like I had to have a special interest area, so that was computers. And I did a bunch of programming and blah, blah, blah. So I had this nice day job career in high tech for several years where I was writing software manuals and, and marketing presentations and so forth, all having to do with high tech, which I really enjoyed. And in fact, one of those early jobs right out of school was with uh, a company that makes music hardware and software. So I was writing those manuals and I was picking up the phone and it was Trent Reznor or you know Wendy Carlos getting tech support which was really awesome mm -hmm. um, but uh, at, so at the same time that I've got the day job in technical writing like I said I've played in bands forever and in my sort of at the same time that I was always doing indie rock I was also doing really experimental stuff where I would like get obsessed with elevator machinery and record all the elevator shafts I could find and then make a collage, like a performable collage piece out of that and play at the, you know, the weird garage experimental venues and do that. Yeah. And so I, at the same time I was gaining experience as a tech writer, I was also building my experience and knowledge of music technology. And at some point, you know, after I did my master's degree, at the University of New Mexico, they called me. The, the head of the department called me and said, come teach. And he, he literally said, whatever you want, do what you do. Hmm. And, and that's like, that's golden. I mean, like, to have an opportunity like that. So, um, yeah, so it combines the skill in technical writing with the love of music and music technology. And now I all that experience as a technical communicator I use to teach these music technology classes. So I'm really comfortable writing, I'm really comfortable shooting demo videos, I'm really comfortable you know putting together presentations about it and so forth because I did all that in my day job. So yeah it worked out really well. So that's just an example. You're another great example of how you played flute growing up mm -hmm. and and you know what I think was a really genius move ended up with a flute scholarship and then that allowed you to get to where you are now and now you're combining those things so that you're serving the music industry as an accountant that's another perfect example of a complementary opportunity so so it's almost like you could make a chart where on one side you put things that I'm definitely good at even if I even if it's maybe not the thing I want to do always always but right. things that I know I'm great at and then the other side you put things that I love to do and, and you just start seeing where these things could possibly intersect that you can maybe earn a living or earn earn some money you know earn some money and that's you know for me tech writing and instructional writing, instructional videos, and music, and music technology, and those things came together into this teaching job. So, um, yeah, so some of my students in the entrepreneurship class, there's like, there were some fine artists, fine, you know, fine arts majors, like visual arts majors, who had never really thought about 
selling their stuff, interestingly. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, it's just sort of like, you know, if you're going to be a painter, you're going to be, um, what is the word, ceramicist? Ceramicist? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, like, you, you are at some point hoping to sell one of these things, right? So um, now they've kind of banded together. They've formed this little kind of cohort or alliance, gotten an Etsy store. They're going to visit galleries in town. They've got a goal of being in three different galleries by the end of the semester. And um, so they're, you know, they're putting together these things that like, okay, well, I have a little bit of bookkeeping experience from my day gig at the bar. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a woman who keeps spreadsheets and stuff for a bar. And then, you know, she's working on her art on the side and she can combine those capabilities and, and possibly help other artists too. So... Yeah, it's just finding finding ways to combine the things you know how to do, the things you love doing, and turning it into an income opportunity. So. I had to plug my computer back in. Sorry. <laughs> it was oh, dying. that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> um, but that's really good. I think that I like the way you said to combine, you know, what you're really good at and then also what you really like to do. Um, and, and kind of mapping those out together to figure out how they fit or, you know, what unique opportunity you might be able to come up with. And I'm also a big proponent of kind of, like you said, creating your own opportunity where you're taking that, you know, you're a ceramicist, if, if we're saying that right, right? Um, an artist, and you guys kind of combine maybe what you guys do together. Maybe you're creating the look of the, the item, um, and then you have an artist who's a painter who creates unique works of art on the ceramics, maybe. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, or it could be something like, you know, if you're a painter, you create an original piece, and then that original piece becomes napkins, you know, high-end napkins, or like, yeah. you know, just anything. I think there's so many different opportunities um, where we don't look to put our art in, in different places, you know? Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, I, I hadn't really thought too much about it before teaching this entrepreneurship class, but just like my music or any of my students' music could find its way into an ad, a commercial, a, a YouTube video, a TV show, or a movie, um, artists, visual artists, they, they license their designs. That's mm -hmm. how cute stuff ends up on the napkins at the Target. You know, that's where that stuff comes from. There's somebody out there making those cute trendy illustrations mm -hmm. and I know that some people would be oh selling out is a like what do you are you do you want to make a living from it mm -hmm. or would you rather have an unrelated day job and then come home into your art and not worry about it you know honestly I get that it's okay right it's okay but if you want to make a living with it eventually you're going to have to sell it <laughs> and and it's just you know it's really not that big of a deal right i think too uh what's interesting is that oftentimes i say you know for example i think i told you when we talked last week that i enjoy sewing it's one thing that i do i can't say i'm great at it yet you know it's a it's a practice thing um but it's not necessarily something that i would ever see myself you know selling to other people i'm not a fashionista in that way um but it's something that i enjoy doing that's literally just a hobby you know i really don't plan to ever make money on it and probably will never sell it but 
if it's one of the things where you do want to make money off of it or you do want to create a career out of it, in that case, you know, you do need to behave as a business and think of licensing and things like that. They go outside of the norm of just selling your art on the wall as a, you know, $4,000 piece. Um, you know, you'll have to sell quite a few of those to make a living, you know, and yeah. versus if you license it one time and let, you know, uh, Hallmark print it on greeting cards or whatever, you know, then you, you wind up, you still created that piece and maybe that original piece is still $4,000 and it's on someone's wall. Um, but the, you know, the copy of it is, is available on Hallmark cards in every CVS, you know, that we ever see. You know, it could be something like that. No, um, absolutely, absolutely. And do you, do you have clients who are like, Oh well, I would have to change. I would have to change my sound, or I would have to, you know, whatever. And they're resistant to, you know, selling selling their work. Like you know, musicians, they they're afraid that if they try to make it a little more, not try to make it more marketable, but but that they would sort of lose their identity as artists. Yes, um, I actually spoke with someone uh, about a week ago. They're not a client yet. Um, but they were very concerned about writing for others. They really didn't want to write for others. Even even being a songwriter, didn't really want to sell the songs that they uh, wrote. They really wanted to either perform them themselves or write the song with someone in mind already. That way, it's it's performed in the way that they would perform it essentially. Um, and so I think that's kind of a limiting mindset, um, you know, because each each person's interpretation of the song is going to be a little bit different, even if the words are the same. Um, so yeah, I have I've have ran into some people who are resistant to, um, you know, making small changes to a song in order to make it fit for this type of avenue. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I've also seen to where. Uh, and one one question I probably have for you is about one thing we didn't mention was that you're doing film. Maybe, I, I guess we did, is some film scores um, mm -hmm. and how those get kind of chopped uh, chopped up in order to fit into a specific scene um, and maybe the music supervisor or whoever is kind of maybe mixing them or you know adding an extra like drum kick or something I don't know to to the piece that you originally created and adjusting it to fit what they need um, and I've, I've seen some artists who are uncomfortable with that they want it put in exactly as it was written. Wow well do they want it put in? <laughs> that, would be, that would be my question back to them. Is like, do you, do you want it to be used? Okay. Um, you know, I I actually music supervised a movie that I also composed for. So there were like, I think we talked about this, but there were like 52 little cues throughout. Well, not all little, but 52 times over the course of the two-hour movie, there was music going on. I wrote and produced 48 of those. The other four, three of them were local bands to Albuquerque, and one was like a relative of somebody um, related to the production of the film who was a fantastic um, artist, a male country duo, who happened to be, this was like a movie about a woman with breast cancer, and one of the guys was married to an attorney for the Komen Foundation. So it was like all the ties were right there, and it was it was really fantastic, but you know, when I was soliciting music, I went to uh, a an Albuquerque music library. So this is a woman who maintained work by artists who were interested in getting their work licensed. And there was a song that could work perfectly in a scene, but it had like talking that sounded like a radio at the beginning. Okay. And the guy wouldn't. I, I can't. I can't remember how it how it worked out, but like. 
I had to write her back and say, you, you know that this isn't going to work, right? Can you, can you get them to make a version without the talking and the radio sounds at the beginning? You, you just use common sense. It's, it's okay. Like, make a different mix. Just make alternate mixes. You know, make one with a vocal up, make one with a vocal submerged a little bit more. Um, make one that doesn't have any kind of like special effects sounds or anything like that in it. Make one with, you know, the works. Um, make one that has, if it doesn't already, make a version that has a button, what's called a button ending, which means it comes to a close okay. as opposed to fading out. Um, there are so many things and, and that's not going to change who you are as an artist to put a definitive ending on your song. It's not going to change who you are as you are as an artist maybe like you don't have key changes is kind of a is kind of a thing a lot of times. Um, but in the interviews that I've done, I've interviewed a bunch of other artists for for this class, for the students to watch and like to a person they're like, "No, I haven't had to give up anything. If anything, I've like broadened my horizons. Like I studied country music for a year." Mm -hmm. because I thought I had kind of an in there and it it went nowhere and I eventually changed direction back to focusing on instrumentals but then I was writing better melodies because of having studied contemporary country I just I don't know it's like do you want to grow as a musician like you can say yes or no it's okay but like at least try, you know open your mind to the possibility but I, I feel like I talked, I talked to another class in the arts management program at UNM and there was a student who just couldn't let go of thinking that somehow what I was writing every day was not really me because I was being asked to write, you know, give us a vibe similar to um, Avicii, you know, give us a vibe similar to Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Okay, fine. That doesn't mean it's not me. It doesn't mean I can't inject my own thing into it. And mm -hmm. that he kept wanting to hear that. And then when I'm done with that for the day, I write music for myself. No, I'm really freaking proud of. There's like there's like one piece of music that I've produced that I'm kind of like mm, I'd rather not do any more like that maybe. But um, out of 330. That's not too bad. That's that piece has also made me a bunch of money. So I'm kind of like, oh, I guess I need to like get over myself and do more. And it's like the dun 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 kind of thing. I'm not a fan, but you know, if you if you do it well, I, I just I don't know. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a matter of where you are in your life and what mm -hmm. you want and what matters to you. Um, if you're in your 20s, you've got time. That's fine. Although, you know, I do feel like if you're gunning for an artist deal, you know, like a rep, get after it. You need to be like so focused, so single-minded. Don't let anybody get in your way. Don't let anybody slow you down. Don't let anybody tell you no. Because there are just too many people who want to do it. It's insanely competitive. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, in terms of music licensing, yeah, you know, if you if you're not comfortable with it now, give it give it a few years, and maybe you'll maybe you'll change your mind. Yeah, good point. So one more question about the music licensing side. So, sure. 
how would you say is, and I don't know if this gets too personal, so be okay to say no, um, but how would you say an artist should work out their their pricing structure behind licensing? If it's, if it's me, for example, as an accountant, and I want to use it in my videos, and I want permission for that, um, maybe what's a, what's a way that an artist can decide what the value of that piece is um, and what they're, willing to, what they're willing to charge for that? Gosh, you know, um, that's a hard one, and it has nothing to do with me not wanting to provide an answer. But so often, you find out what type of budget project it is. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's an actual designation of, like, with the Screen Actors Guild, you have to pay the actors a certain amount if they are union actors. But mm-hmm. if your film qualifies, for example, as a, I don't know if it's, like, ultra-low budget, I can't remember the term for it, say your movie's only going to cost about $200,000, you're sort of, I think you're, you get a little bit of leeway on how much you pay the actors, but then you like maybe give them producer credits or something like that so that you can bump their pay. There are little ways to get around it, but you know, if somebody comes up to me and says that the entire budget for their film is $200,000, I'm not going to ask for what John Williams makes, right? You know, so it's it's a case-by-case thing. It's a case-by-case thing, and then I know like providing videos for different ads around town. It's the, the biggest ad agency and one of the, you know, like a government agency making a promotional video. There's some money there. Mm-hmm. If it's a local nonprofit and you want to help them out, you're not going to ask for a two grand licensing fee, right? So um, it, it just it differs case by case. And you know when it comes to licensing for TV, I don't really have that much say in it. Like when I mentioned the check showed up for two grand, that was my 50% cut of what that publisher negotiated to get. Right. I, I didn't even know it was happening until the check showed up in my mailbox. So some of those things would be out of your hands if you're using a publisher, but if you're representing yourself, then, you know, uh, my colleagues, we all kind of ask each other. Like, you know, we have we have forums online and we'll be like, here's the situation, they're offering me this, should I ask for more, et cetera, et cetera. Or, you know, what do you think I should ask for such and such? And um, there are lots of sources online to see kind of what going rates are for things. I, I think the one general thing I could say is don't underprice yourself. And I, and I know, you know, you feel the same way if you don't value your stuff, believe me, nobody else is going to. Mm-hmm. Like, sort of like, you know, if you don't respect yourself, nobody else is going to. You have to, you know, what is it Dr. Phil says? You teach people how you want to be treated. Right. So, you know, don't be a doormat. Don't be a jackass, but don't be a doormat, you know? Right. So, um, and one thing that I would say, too, that was especially lucrative, you know, not huge money, but great relationships so that there was a there was a um, production house in Albuquerque with whom I worked on a film like the director happened to hire me to compose and she happened to hire them to do the post-production so I got to know the principals at that production house they came back to me for I think three ads in the next two years all in the you know a thousand here six hundred there a couple thousand there and the, 
the production manager said, I can't imagine another composer being as easy to work with as you. Wow. So that's, that's a big deal. I mean, ma managing those relationships so that people want to keep coming back, that can add up over time as well. So like, it, that's what I, what I tell my students, and you know, they've heard it dozens of times, is you might get your first gig by being great, but you'll get every gig after that by being great to work with. So, yeah, that's yeah, that pay that pays pays off over time too. So for sure, I, I know think, I didn't really answer, but no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. That was good. That was a good answer. I think the biggest challenge for the artists that I work with or that I've you know talked to and wherever I may be is that they don't know what their value is. They don't know what their worth is. They haven't determined even a minimum maybe uh, for for delivering a custom film score or you know anything like that. And so what they're running into is like, okay, how about well they offered me a hundred dollars. I'm like, okay, well, you know, uh, you know, how much, you know, I'm not all for valuing your time by the hour, as you know, but mm -hmm. You know, think about how much time and energy you're going to put into this, and if a hundred dollars is all you're going to get, if you need it to buy groceries that week, go for it. You know, I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. um, but you're, if you're thinking on a bigger level, maybe a hundred dollars isn't isn't going to really get you where you want to be, and there could be another opportunity out there that this hundred dollar gig is taken away from a thousand dollar gig. Yeah, taking your time away from from other things that could be bigger, and there see there are a lot of factors to consider too. Like, if they want to license your music what kind of license is it going to be and by all means have written sync and master use licenses in place mm -hmm. that specify this but do they just get to use it for six months do they get to use it for one festival do they get to use it for only festivals or do they get to use it in the real term is in perpetuity forever you know is the is the time is the term length forever and the territory, the universe, and I'm not being facetious, I mean I'm sure you know, this is, these are the terms that are used. In right. perpetuity, which means forever, across, you know, in the universe, which means any state, any country, any planet, um, and uh, in not just, say, DVDs, but media heretofore known and not yet designed. Yeah. So yeah. like if, you know, Apple comes up with a new video player five years from now that completely obliterates other media forms, mm -hmm. the license would still let them put it out on that media. Do you expect that they're going to go to like big time film festivals or is this just a, a really small local project? So, you, you know, all those things have to factor in and sometimes what you can do is accept less money up front, but then say, if you turn a profit, I get X percent. Mm -hmm. And that way you kind of get the best of both. So then, you know, you get something up front, but then if, if they do well, then it'll come back to you. So yeah, there, there are just so many factors. For sure, and that's that's kind of what I, uh, I've told so many artists too, is that it's, a, it's not necessarily a you know, no two, no two things that you do are going to be priced exactly the same, you know, and, and it goes the same way even for me. Um, no two artists that I work with, um, everybody who I work with is very well aware of this, no two of them are priced at the same point, um, even maybe for the same services, um, because 
you know, no two tax returns are even the same. Um, it's very much so, you know, if you're someone who's much more needy and you want to talk to me every day at 10 a.m., well, that's probably going to, you know, I'm, I'm delivering much more value than somebody who's like, hey, just contact me sometime before April 15th and let me know how much I owe. You know, so those are two very different um, scenarios. Each you know each person is very different, and you can price accordingly. And I think it's good for an artist to know their value, and but also know what what that value is to the person who is um, seeking their service or their 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 artwork. Um, to know you know what is this going to be used for? Like you said, um, is it just this one one time thing, or are you going to be using you know can can I license this song also to another place because you're only using it in this medium? Maybe it can also show up here or there. Um, so good point there. So would you say that, um, I guess, what's what's any advice that you might have for, for people who are um, in the arts and they're entrepreneurs? And they are entrepreneurs? Yes. Um, Maybe what even makes an entrepreneur? Gosh. Uh, you know, there are lots of different definitions for entrepreneur, and, and it's evolved over time. It used to practically equate to just somebody who runs their own business. And now, in more recent years, you know, from Peter Drucker on, it's there's a lot more talk about how much risk the person takes, how much risk the person is willing to take, um, and the fact that once they get it up and running, they tend to move on and go do something else. Mm. So that, you know, I, that wouldn't necessarily apply to me, that version of, of the term, but... Um, you know, when teaching the class that I teach, it's really just about um, thinking like a business, treating treating your work, whatever it is, like a business, with all the seriousness and discipline that that requires. But also, you know, the wonderful creativity that you should be capable of bringing as an artist to like some of the business ideas that you've come up with. I mean, there are people who just would not think of doing the, the box service that you that you do. Um, but keeping great records, you know, I mean, I know that's, the, that's and I'm preaching to the choir here, and, you know, you love hearing me say this if your clients are listening, but, you know, by keeping a spreadsheet or even just keeping a list, a notepad, whatever it is, entering your expenses and then come the end of the year it makes it or each quarter if you have to pay like you know local taxes or something like that like in Albuquerque I had to pay gross receipts taxes um, I just had to do it twice a year and then also of course for your for your federal taxes just keeping good records about everything you're doing and that also gives you a basis for seeing how your business is doing like I told you about that piece that dun dun Dun, 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 that I'm like, oh, okay. It's how do I know that it's made a bunch of money? Well, because I download my electronic spread, my electronic cue sheets from ASCAP, and I throw them into Google Sheets, and I run a pivot report, and I can see which songs, which shows, which publishers are doing the best for me. Mm-hmm. And that's you know that's golden you know the whole thing of measure measuring to improve you can't improve something that if you don't know where you are now you, you, right. it's hard to know how to improve so I can say when I made you know one of my students is like I don't know Potter this gallery does way better than all the other galleries combined 
they sell more on Sundays and Mondays than they do any other day of the week. Wow. So go talk to that, you know, this is just an example that she and I were talking about, but like, take that gallery owner out to coffee and find out what's going on on Sundays and Mondays. Try to get to know who these people are who are buying your stuff, what they're like, what's their age range, what, what are their other tastes, what kind of events might they go to that you could advertise at or that you could have, have your work shown at. And, you know, just, just start tracking stuff. Treat it like a business. I mean, that's, you know, that means, that can mean so many things, but... Yeah, if you, if, you, if you treat it like a hobby, it'll pay like a hobby. That's something that, that I have heard a thousand times since joining this, this one agency that I use a lot called Taxi. They've been just immeasurably helpful for me in terms of learning and connections, especially the first couple years that I was doing this. So. Yeah, I like what you said about if you if you... Treat it like a hobby, it'll pay like a hobby. Um, and obviously, hobbies don't necessarily pay very well. They're normally something that you put a lot of money into just because you enjoy doing it. Um, right. Not something that you're expecting a return on your investment in. Um, so last question, what would you say to artists now who are either treating it like a hobby but they're wanting to make money from it, wanting to make a career from it, um, and maybe even some that are what I say working for free. Um, they're giving away things for free. Um, they are, you know, performing for free. They are, you know, creating custom scores for free, whatever it may be, um, in in expectation of, you know, what they say is exposure. Um, <clears throat> what would you say to them, um, maybe, and and maybe how they can transition from that hobby pay to, to business type pay? Um, well, I, it would be it would be hypocritical of me if I, if I said, you know, oh, well, ex you should always get paid and you should always expect to get paid right out of the, you know, because I did a bunch of stuff for free mm -hmm. um, early on, early on. And, the, like, there were certain theater companies that I worked with when I was very first starting, but they weren't making any money either. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think for me the thing is treat me at least as well as you're treating yourself like a sort of most favored nations clause in, in every arrangement that you make. It, it, like I was saying about how much do you charge, well if it's a $2,000 indie short, you're not going to ask for $1,500 of their $2,000. If it's a $200,000 micro budget, if it's a $2 million small budget, you know, these are all different things. Um, but, but yeah, like I, I, would, I would look at your mindset and say, is there anything that you're afraid of, maybe? Like, is there something that you're not being totally honest with yourself about related to taking that step and crossing that line? Is it a self-esteem thing? Do you, do you believe your stuff is worth it? And if not, why not? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of this stuff requires some introspection and, and, and being, like, really brutally honest with yourself. Um, but... I definitely got started by exposure. I mean, the other funny saying we have is you can die of exposure. But um, that's like the common, the common comeback for that. And, you know, I think you and I talked last week about one of the painters that I have interviewed as part of the series I'm doing whose dentist asked, hey, would you want to hang some of your paint? And this is a guy whose stuff sells for like four grand and, and more. 
right. tens, tens of thousands. Um, it would be great exposure. And Bo was like, um, well, yeah, we, we, how about this? We could trade. Or like you could work on my teeth for free. And every time I smile and someone compliments my smile, I could tell them that you did the work. Is that, how does that sound? Does that sound good? I mean, he's just like awesome, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, it's so case by case, you know. I mean, I hate to say never work for free because I did it. I did it. But right. it was also like, you know, the, say this theater company. Sometimes they were able to pay me, and when they were able to pay me, they paid me. Mm-hmm. That led to me working for other theater companies that were better funded and where these guys gave me $50 sometimes, nothing sometimes, $200 sometimes. Another theater company in Santa Fe gave me two grand. So, you know, for, for basically the same amount of effort. So they would never have heard of me, and I would never have even known that I was suddenly a theater composer if I hadn't met up with these guys at UNM while we were all students. See, so it's like sort of coming up together with, with people. Finding people who are maybe just just a little bit ahead of you and working with them, and then when the money starts to come, you know. My friend who did one of the feature films that I scored, she made three shorts. Nobody got paid. Every single person was volunteer, mm-hmm. and I knew that. And I love her, and I love her projects, so I was comfortable with it. Then when she got funding, I got paid later mm-hmm. for, a, for a feature length for a two-hour film. You know, She did three 10-minute shorts, and then she worked her way up to a feature length. Everybody got paid, and that was like her thing. Everybody's going to get paid. Um, so it, it can be a matter of developing, but if it's like it's something you've been doing it and doing it and doing it for free, and you just continually perform out for free and I'm I just kind of like do do you want to earn money from it is there something is there something going on here that's stopping you from asking for money mm-hmm. find out what other bands are getting and maybe you're just in a you know crappy music town that doesn't treat musicians properly you know I, I don't know there I remember when I when I lived in Boston and played in Boston there were over 2,000 bands in the local band registry, and that's people who bother to register their bands, just as sort of a stats thing. And I think fewer than 10 clubs that hosted original music. Hmm. So you were in a position of, you know, you were paying the sound man, and if you were lucky, you came away with a few bucks toward gas. Mm-hmm. So... You know, it's kind of hard to like be like, oh, always get. You know, sometimes the circumstances are not going to be that. But um, yeah, yeah. And I, <laughs> I like that you said um, <clears throat> one of the things you said about about the the artist um, and knowing that he didn't want exposure from the dentist office. I think sometimes it's a matter of knowing your target audience and like you said, who, you know, with the pottery um, artist, you know, finding out from those galleries that were selling your stuff, okay, who are who is buying my stuff? Where mm-hmm. else would they be? Mm-hmm. Um, once you start to know where those places are and what those what your target audience, the type of people who buy your stuff, where they hang out, that kind of thing, then you can expose yourself to that type of audience in a place where they would be. Um, and that type of exposure would be good versus just any type of exposure 
for the sake of it, of saying that your art is on a wall. Um, I think that's that's important to kind of know know your target audience uh, or know where you're trying to go. Like you said, you did the the theater composing, um, and then that grew into more theater composing and and going from there. So if that's something that's of interest to you, of course, your first your first time at bat, you should definitely probably either charge fairly low because you have a high learning curve on that, um, mm -hmm. or you know, kind of do it do it pro bono and um, you know take it as an experience type of a thing. Um, mm -hmm. But I think I think knowing your audience and knowing where they're going to be um, is important. For example, I can't. Um, it, it doesn't make any sense really for me to speak in an accounting conference. Um, I'm right. an accountant, but that, right. they're not my audience. What am I going to get from them other than maybe referrals if a musician comes to them and they don't want to, they, they're like, hey, this isn't my avenue. Um, but most of the places you'll see me are in music and art circles um, because that's the, you know, that's the audience I'm looking for. If you offer me exposure in that type of a scenario, it's more likely that I'll do it versus, you know, I, I can't talk to, Necessarily, and maybe like tech, high tech comp software companies or something like that. Um, there would be no purpose for me there, you know, just for the sake of exposure, because that I'm not exposing myself to the right audience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that's absolutely right. Like if you're a jazz band, you're not going to try to get on the van tour or the Lollapalooza tour. You know, I mean, you're gonna you're gonna look for the highest end um, catered events and political events and you know like high-end stuff where there's definitely a budget and then you're gonna show up and you're gonna be reliable and professional and impeccably dressed and on time and all of that and you know you, you have to show up if you're gonna go for those those things you gotta you gotta show up and, and walk the walk but um, yeah they're, they're also different they're also different but I, I think, you know, it's kind of the same, that, that thing of, like, just wanting to make sure that I'm being treated as well as everybody else on the project. Mm -hmm. Then I'm happy. Then I'm happy, even if it is 50 bucks. If, if it's something I feel strongly about. Like, I, I provided music that was already written. They just picked something out of my catalog that I, you know, still have the right to, to license. Some of my stuff, the publisher owns it 100%, and I'm not allowed to. But... It was for a political candidate, and I liked her, and I liked the people producing the work, and um, I was, you know, it was like, you know, hundred bucks. Fine, I didn't have to lift a finger, and a hundred bucks just came to me. That's fine. Right. Yeah. But if you're gonna do stuff for free, especially like custom composing, one thing I would strong, even if you're not doing it for free, write up a contract and put in it the number of revisions that they're allowed to ask for. Ah, I like That's that. something that people don't think of, and it just turns into a, a hellhole of, of, you know, it ends in tears when <laughs> they have come back to you for the eleventh time asking for changes to the queue. You know, it's just, uh, it's it sucks. So be sure to be sure to put that in the contract, whatever you do. Yeah, for sure. And I think I, I recently, I like that you said, you know, if you're a jazz musician, you know, you, sh you shouldn't be trying to, you know, follow somebody on their rock tour or whatever. You're going to want to do high-end, you know, gala type um, events and things like that. And I do have one artist, and she does quite a few events like that. Um, she has her own catalog, but she also will do cover songs and things like that that, that they want for that type of um, venue. But one of the ways I like that she was creative um, is that the 
what you said about being fairly compensated like the other people that are part of that event. And what she recognized is that, you know, it was a fundraising um, event mm. for a nonprofit. Um, and of course, they're charging, let's say, $150 a plate. Um, and you know, and you have this nice setup of obviously the caterer is getting paid, the photographer is getting paid, um, you know, the venue that you're hosting this at is getting paid. Yes. Yes. Um, you want me to work for free, and she was very uncomfortable with that. Um, and the way that she ended up working it out is that she, they weren't so comfortable maybe paying for her to perform. But what she ended up getting them to do was to pay for a CD for every person in, that came. Um, so what they ended up doing. Yeah, so they let's say they had 200 people who came. Well, they bought 200 CDs. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, and so she was able to sell. I mean, obviously, everyone took away a tangible product of hers um, mm -hmm. as her, you know, quote-unquote gift maybe from the charity, um, but she also was able to earn money from that um, event because, you know, she wasn't being paid for, technically wasn't being paid for her performance, but she was being paid for, you know, everybody in the room got a CD for at $10 a, a pop. Um, nice. So it ended up being a nice, a nice, you know, a nice supplement to what they weren't willing to do, but she wanted to be compensated in some type of way, um, fair to, you know, well, you're saying the caterer is tech, is bringing food to the people, so maybe that's why she, they were not so, like, okay with just her performance. They kind of wanted something maybe tangible, um, and she, I guess she kind of saw that, that avenue there. No, that, that's exactly right. I mean, and, and that's such a good mindset to have, like, pick up your head and look around. Do you think that photographer is doing that for free? No way. Do you think the caterers? No way. So just because you can't touch it doesn't mean it doesn't have value. That's right. why so many people steal music off the internet is because somehow it seems like it's not so bad because it's just a file. But it's not just a file. It's years and years of dedication and hard work and craft. Right. So, yeah. But that, that was a pretty brilliant move because imagine if she'd gotten a grand to go perform, took a box of CDs with her, how many do you think she would have sold? Right? Yeah, yeah. So now she's just gone home with 200 people. Yes, exactly. And Fantastic. she's from them, which kind of gives them a extra dose of her, you know, versus just handing out your CDs at the door <laughs> right. on their way out, and they're like, okay, thanks, you know, that awkward that some people do, um, you know, she was actually able to perform, so they saw her live, and she's yeah. an excellent performer. She's a string musician, um, but she's oh, an wow. as well. Um, she puts on a show um, that you probably don't see too much with uh, <laughs> with nice. cl classically trained folks, but um, yeah, but I thought it was brilliant of her to get them to buy into purchasing, you know, the product that she had, since they didn't so much value the service of her performing. Um, so yeah, I thought she was genius. Yeah, I mean, you know, it 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 feels like a punch in the stomach to to just even say those words. Clearly, they didn't value her performance. Yeah, that that's hard. You know, that's hard to swallow. But she turned it around and made something positive out of it, which which I totally applaud her for that. That's really good work. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, it's a good deal. I'm all for creative, creatively. You know finagling it however you have to. I know it's not, it's, I, don't, I wouldn't call it selling out because she's still earning um, her oh, living. No. Yeah. Something special for, you know, for that nonprofit or anything like that, but she was still compensated and, and her, like you said, she went home with 200 people that night. Um, 
and, and you know, you know, who knows how many Facebook likes or tweet tweets or whatever might have come from that, and who might come see yeah. her sometime. So, um, definitely a good thing, and uh, you know, I'm all for creatively um, distributing your art in in different ways, um, because yeah. I, I always say if there's you either want to make music, you know, wanting to make music for a living versus wanting to make money from music are two kind of kind of different things. Um, to where you you know you kind of just have to think of it in a different way uh, and and be creative with you know it's not all about selling CDs and performing. It could be right. licensing. Nobody ever sees your face, the face of the composer. Um, right. Do you want to be famous or do you want to create music? So right. Good deal. Well, thank you. You have been excellent. Is there anything you want to say before we before we sign off? Oh, I was just going to launch into like the the client of yours who performs for free. Are they at least getting people to sign up for their email list? They don't have an email list at this point. What are they doing? What? Why are they doing this? Yeah, it's it's why one of those things. Doing? You know. I'm trying. I'm trying to help. I'm in that space. I'm trying to help um, because I think <laughs> a lot of people that throw things. What? <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> you know, it, it's one of those things where honestly, I just started my email list in November. Uh, I will have to be honest about that. Yeah. Um, but but one of the things is that I don't think they know what to email. You know, I think that sometimes people don't want to give you your email because they're afraid you're just going to spam them with, "Hey, buy my stuff. Buy my stuff. I bought out. I brought out a new T-shirt." performed a new single, here's what I'm doing, it's all about me, um, versus kind of seeing, you know, what your audience is about and what they like and, and, and talking yeah. to them for whatever reason they gave you their information. But no, uh, the email list thing, I haven't seen too many people of my artists do it uh, at all, um, if well. Um, I, I do have one that does some um, kid rock band type stuff. They perform actually for kids. Um, okay. Have like kid-friendly music type stuff, um, and they do really good with their email list um, because they kind of make it a mommy and me or a daddy and me type stuff. Bring your kids out, you know, for a Saturday morning, you know, and we can, you know, do family-friendly music stuff. Um, and so it goes, theirs goes really well. They're already thinking about it like a business, though. Just just by virtue of that choice to do that kind of music, it's clear to me that you know, yeah. know that's not one that people do you know, sort of like by accident or like, I'm in a band, I'm in a band, you know, um, everybody and their brother is in a band, but what are you doing with it? Those people who are like, we are doing children's music and we are having these events that the parent can come to, it's a, you know, that's a business, they're, they're working it. Yeah, I think, yeah, so I think the ones, like you said, the ones who are touring and, and performing for free and even giving away lots of CDs for free um, and not having an email list or you know hoping for Facebook fans and followers or Twitter fans and followers or Google Plus whatever it may be um, I'm not sure where that gets them in terms of that except for that they've maybe heard that uh, large record labels are looking for you to have a solid fan base they kind of look at how many Twitter followers you have or how many Facebook fans you have um, but one thing I always say is it's also about fan engagement you could buy fans if you wanted to but they know that that's fake you know they want right. people who are following you for you know for for the right reasons because um, they enjoy your music so I'm not sure what their mentality is I think it's a fear thing about charging um, anything uh, and the second part is that they haven't really thought of it as a business they thought of it as I want to get my music out there. I want to be heard. I want to be seen. Um, and they haven't quite figured out the whole how am I going to turn this into, you know, a, 
a living for myself yet. Uh -huh. um, and that's kind of where the, the hiccup stands. Yeah. Well, they, you know, they, they should ask themselves, are they bringing something of value to the table? I mean, when they, when they play, is it fantastic? You know, I, yeah, they've, they've got, they've got a, yeah, labels want to see, labels at, at these days, like, want you to have basically already done everything for them, <laughs> right? You know, mm -hmm. it used to, there used to be such a thing as artist development, and, you know, I'm not, I shouldn't talk as if that's an area of expertise for me, necessarily, that part of the business, but um, definitely, I mean, even even 20 years ago, bands getting signed out of Boston, which was happening a lot 20 years ago, um, 25 years ago, the record label was basically just slapping their own logo on what the band had already paid to have recorded. And that was 25 years ago. These days, it's like, you'd better already have this many hits on YouTube, or you know, views of your, your lead song. You'd better already have this many Facebook, this much Twitter, this much whatever, my, you know, not MySpace anymore, but Reverb Nation, SoundCloud. Um, like, how do they think that that's going to happen? It's not going to invent itself, you know? It's not going to, you know, throw some water on it and it's going to grow like a chia. It just doesn't happen that way. They gotta, they've got to make that happen. Yeah, and I think I think their way of doing that is that you know they their thought process is that the more people that they get in front of and the more people that hear them, even for you know for free, because it's it's one of those things where it's how can I get people to come pay to see me if they don't know me yet? Um, and What's, so I would ask, what is the quality of the audience? In other words, like what not not, not the quality of the audience, but to them in terms of what they do, their genre, their future, their vision, their work, these gigs that they play for free, the only reason they should do it for free is if it's like the dream demographic for them to be seen and heard. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, if they're there to provide music as a service because the place wants there to be music in the background or, you know, a hot a hot-looking young band up on the stage to give them that vibe, they should be getting paid. If mm -hmm. it's, you know what I mean? Like, what what value are they getting from it? They've got to get something from it. Yeah, and I think, like you said, again, that the, the key here is knowing your demographic. Know who listens to your music and who likes it. It's okay to be in those places for free to kind of introduce yourself to your, your fans, but know who your fans are. If you're like you said, if you're a, a jazz musician, for example, the local bar on the corner is probably not a good place for you to perform. Those aren't the type of people who would be listening to your music. You know, you yeah. want to be in blues and jazz clubs um, and things like that, or you know, nonprofit uh, gala type, you know, fundraising events or that kind of thing are more. You know, even weddings. I know that there's like this thing about not doing. A lot of people don't like doing weddings so much, um, but. But it's one of those things where those are probably, you know, the types of venues or um, experiences that you could potentially do for free that would expose you to the type of people who would purchase or come out to see you um, versus just kind of doing any type of show just to get in front of people. Um, it may not be time. Right, right, right. So, yeah, if you're going to do it for free, make sure you're getting some kind of value out of it and that the people who are going to be there are people that it really matters for you to be seen by. Mm-hmm. 
and then ask them to sign up for your email list? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, you know, I don't. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll send you. I'll send you an article um, by one of the one of the people who teaches at Berkeley College of Music, and and their suggested ways to use social media as a as sort of a suite. It's a toolkit. It's not, you know, oh, well, I just do email, but I don't bother with Facebook or whatever. You know, you kind of use them all together. And then also um, Dave Cool, who's one of the, his name is actually Dave Cool, one of the owners of Bandzoogle. Um, he has great blog posts on, um, and I took a really good class with him at the Taxi Road Rally last year on using social media for your band. And um, it's it, you need to be pretty strategic about it, and it's you know it's like a longer, and I'm you know that's not my area of expertise necessarily. I would just read from my notes from Dave, but then that wouldn't be right. But um, yeah, there there are great books out on how artists should be using social media. I you know if these guys are are gonna play for free, I just feel like they need to be working at getting the value out of these appearances somehow mm -hmm. and that and that's and you know get get some way to touch these people again yeah good point yeah good deal yeah. all right cool well anything else or are we good no i think we're cool <laughs> all right thanks so much ck for joining thank me. you lexus for telling me all about what you've got going on and explaining complimentary opportunities and you know how artists can make money from other than just performing and selling CDs and those all those unique experiences. So thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs>